It's so good to be able to be with you. We are starting kind of a new little series today. Um, thinking through, you know, kind of where we're going as a church and, and what, what would God have for us. And, um, you know, talking to Jay this morning, our wonderful bass player, you know, he's saying, mentioned that the, the series we're going to be going into, um, really just feeling called to talk about wisdom and Jay was mentioning that story of Solomon, where as he was inheriting this crown, inheriting this kingdom, and stepping into a role that he knew was too big, God said, whatever you ask, I'll give you. And Solomon very wisely said, wisdom. And, um, and God's response was then to bless him with everything else as well. And I think that some of that shows God's delight in that desire for wisdom. Some of it shows that, that with wisdom, God really can trust us with more than wisdom. But um, when we're missing that, uh, something tends to go very wrong. And we live in this world that is obsessed with knowledge. And uh, the, the truth is you can have knowledge and not wisdom, right? You can't have wisdom and not knowledge, that, that knowledge is important because wisdom really, when it comes down to it, is this ability to handle knowledge well. And I've been thinking about how we live in this day and age. You know, it's, to me, one of the most clear pictures of the fact that we live in the last days or, you know, later days is that Daniel said, when those days come, there will be an explosion of knowledge. And... Um, I was thinking, you know, as I went out to the post or my mailbox today, I was like, there's just so much to throw away <laughs> these days. Don't get burned. Um, extreme, harmful, unnecessary, bad for Laguna. Like you um, get here, you deserve higher gas prices if you don't vote. Um, they, <clears throat> all this information coming at you, right? And you're going, what, what do you believe? And you go on the internet and basically you get this barrage of voices coming at you with all the right answers, right? How do you discern what to believe and what not to believe? What to trust and what not to trust? And the truth is it's discernment. And discernment is something that we can grow in. Discernment is something that, that we learn, but it's a posture. And so often in this world, I think, as I look around, I see such a lack of wisdom. There was a, a quote that I read that has just continued to be um, significant to me, uh, and it's one that you've, I'm sure, heard of before. But this is from the poet Rilke, who says, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. He says, do not seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And I think about it now, it's very poetic, isn't it? And a little abstract, but living into these questions, right? I think he's talking about longings in our hearts. 
He's talking about the complexity that we find ourselves in. We live in this world filled with such beauty and also some real ugliness. We live in this world with profound joy and also very real suffering. And as we go through it all, wisdom is this this sort of way of being present in the world. There's a gracefulness to wisdom, which is probably why Solomon refers to wisdom as she. And wisdom, I think, lives in the midst of the tensions of life, which is part of what's hard about it. It it sits with the questions. It it doesn't rush to the quick answer, but it, it walks through the complexity to the simplicity on the other side. One of my favorite people, Krista Tippett, I like, love her podcast, but she will say that if you want beautiful answers, you have to ask beautiful questions. And in thinking about that, I think as we talk about wisdom, how important it is that we're talking about the beautiful questions, the deep longings, the things that really speak to our deep humanity and best self. Because when Jesus says he desires that we would have life and have it abundant, I think that's what he's getting at. Not this sort of just life on the surface, right? But getting into the depths of what that means to truly live, to live lives that are deep and meaningful and good. They give hope to our world in the midst of all the clamor and chaos. That's what I think of for our church as I think about the presence that we want to be that we would be a a graceful presence of truth in this town. That we'd be this place of wisdom. And Solomon is said to be the wisest man, although I think Jesus beats him at that. I think that Jesus is truly the wisest man that ever lived. And to study his life, to understand the posture that he brings. I love this about Jesus. It's relaxed and yet pointed when it needs to be. It speaks truth, but always with love. It welcomes us into a way of seeing the world that so often we miss. And as I've been thinking about this series, there's a a proverb that I really like, um, Proverbs 24. And it comes in the midst of these sayings, but Proverbs 24 verses 3 and 4 says this. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it's established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. I love that idea. Knowledge is these rare and beautiful treasures, right? But, but the problem, I think, often is that we neglect the foundation. We neglect the structure and we just go around collecting all these beautiful things for a a house that's about to crumble. And you realize this, the, the, the focus on wisdom is how we lay a stability in our life. And so we want to address that specifically, asking ourselves that question, what does it mean to be wise? I've told you that, um, I've told you this story before, but I studied philosophy in grad school. And we, I had a chance to have this, uh, there was a professor there from Oxford who um, came and taught a class. And anytime you had these visiting professors, I always signed up because I, I loved this like little different 
a perspective that was brought. So this guy, Richard Swinburne, is just this wonderful British Christian philosopher um, from Oxford. And, and he came into uh, the seminary classroom that I was in. And one day the, the teacher said, would you give us like a little devotional as we start? And you could see him like puzzled, like, a what? <laughs> right? I mean, this is just not his world, right? And so, you know, he's like, just give us some sort of like spiritual inspiration today. And he kind of pauses and then he goes, well, you guys are so lucky to be studying what you're studying because you're asking the most important questions. And then he says, and I'm luckier than all of you because I've given my whole life to that. And I thought, oh, what a, what a great perspective. Every other devotion from seminary, I think I've forgotten. And that one stuck for whatever reason, right? Um, but what a gift it is to pay attention to the deepest things. And I think, to me, this is why we gather for church, to, to address the matters that are, um, that are deepest to our hearts. That it's a gift for us to look at these things, these matters, and consider them. And Jesus lives it out for us. He invites us to it. He, he gives the same sort of metaphor as Solomon. And he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And as Jesus teaches us this, I, I think... He, He's cutting right to the chase and going, look, we're not talking about some ethereal spiritual ideas out there, like these real abstract, lofty ideas. He's going like, no, no, if you do this, your house stands. If you don't, it crumbles. In other words, he's, he's talking about reality here. And reality can kind of have a sharp edge to it, can't it? Reality, I like how Dallas Willard says, is, is what we bump into when we're wrong. And this idea that, that wisdom isn't just a way of adding to your life. It's not the, the beautiful knowledge that you, you know, hang on the wall. It's this thing that determines whether or not your life is going to stand or fall. So it's vital. This isn't extracurricular. <laughs> this is fundamental. How do we deal with these questions? And how we answer these questions are going to affect the way that our life looks, the way that we function, ultimately in the end, who we become. And when we hold knowledge in the wrong way, it leads to the wrong sort of fruit. We've been talking about that going through John 15, talking about that passage in Galatians as well. What does the fruit of the Spirit taste like? And this posture of wisdom, when it's done right, I think it sort of protects the fruit. It keeps it from going bad. And, and when we've done this wrong, it turns it sour. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, We know that all of us possess knowledge, but often this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 
But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What's Paul getting at there? If anyone imagines that he knows something, it's such a great way of talking about the, the sort of pride and arrogance that we so often see in our world and this being kind of the antithesis of wisdom. It's foolishness, right? That's what Solomon's going to use as kind of the, the counterbalance to it. Jesus uses that as well. But what leads to that foolishness we see is so often a sense of pride. And maybe a better word for it is hubris. It's an inflated sense of one's own innate abilities that is tied more to the need for dominance than to actual accomplishments. That's how Brene Brown puts it. An inflated sense of one's own innate abilities that is tied more to the need for dominance than to actual accomplishment. She says in one of her books that it's about getting things, not, getting things right, not being right. There's a texture to this hubris that, that sees it through its own like certainty. And, and I use that in a specific way. Because to be certain sounds like being confident, right? But, but philosophers will say, no, certainty is a clutched fist. It's got it all figured out, Right? That, that in the philosophical sense, certainty means the answer is solved and proved. And so often I think we see this world that not only is it filled with tons of opinions, but it's filled with this kind of dogmatic certainty that is closed. It wields its knowledge like a hammer, right? And it just breaks everything it hits. In the last couple of years, man, isn't this, our world has just been this slew of these dogmatic opinions coming at you and doing such damage so often to our own hearts, to our relationships. It's created this sort of deep unrest in our culture. We're anxious, we're factioned. Our foundation is kind of crumbling. But this invitation of wisdom is always there. It's always present, but it requires this open-handedness. Proverbs would say it requires humility. And as we begin talking about wisdom, I, I don't think you can talk about it without talking about humility. That the way that this graciousness is shown, the way that the fruit comes forward and tastes right, is it's held with a humble heart. And to grow in wisdom is to grow in humility. That doesn't mean we don't have confidence in our beliefs. Hear what I'm saying here. It doesn't mean that we don't know things and know them deeply. But this humility is this openness, this curiosity, this willingness to learn and grow. It's listening, right, and considering it's able to weigh matters. And this is the thing. Without humility, we lose our ability to discern. This humility keeps us soft. It keeps us open. It keeps us growing. It has this sort of childlikeness to it. And yet at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's not utilizing every bit of our intelligence. In fact, that's how that muscle grows as well. Here's a little C.S. Lewis for you. 
He says, Christ never meant that we were to remain children in intelligence. On the contrary, he told us to be not only harmless as doves, but also wise as serpents. He wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable as good children are. But he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job and in first-class fighting trim. I like how a little bit later he says, look, you don't have to be smart to be a Christian, but it's going to take your whole mind, right? That what you have there, it's going to ask more of you. It's going to ask that you would grow. He says being a Christian is, is an education in itself. And I think he's right. I was going to ask you, if, it, if God offered you a, a course on wisdom, how many of you would want to sign up for it? And, and I'll follow that up by saying, you're already enrolled. <laughs> that, that we live in this school of wisdom. And God is teaching us how to become wise. But while all of us will grow old, not all of us will become wise that it takes a sort of openness, it takes a leaning in, it takes an exercising of the muscles. And I say that it begins with wisdom, but, but it probably begins with something even deeper than that. Solomon puts it this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And I think that statement is a humble statement. It's an acknowledgement of something that, that puts us in our proper place. That as we begin this study to really understand wisdom, we understand that, that in the end, that my views, my way of seeing things, come second to what God thinks. That there is a perspective out there greater than my own. It allows me to pray that prayer, not my will, but your will be done, right? Because as I come to God, I'm going to ask for what I consider to be the greatest good. God, this makes the most sense, right? Check for a million dollars would be really nice right now. And, and so can I please have that? That seems like the greatest good. And, and then God says, no, <laughs> That's, that's not the greatest good. That sounds maybe the easiest or most comfortable answer, Jeff that often the greatest good is a harder road that asks more of me than I would ask for myself. And see, this is where I think this is really important, right? Because if we don't have fear of the Lord, then, then we tend to probably think better of ourselves than we should. But we also have less vision of who we are to be and become. And this fear of the Lord is really like stretching the boundaries of these questions, making us ask the even bigger questions. Because if life is just about this little life here and now, and we live for however many years, 80 plus, maybe 90 plus years, um, a good long life, but that's it, then wisdom and value and what a good life looks like will, will fit within that structure and that context. But if life is actually much bigger than that and extends much longer than that, it's going to change how we act and behave. 
If all we have is this life, then we're going to clutch to the possessions and hold on to the pleasures as tightly as we can. But if this school of wisdom extends much longer than that, then maybe it's in laying down our lives that the real riches are found. And do you see how different those paths are? That, That without that sense of this presence of God and the design and more behind the scenes than what we just see on the surface, we tend to have these stories for ourselves that are too small. But when God is the one creating that story, drawing out this narrative, revealing his design, well, that's a story worth living into. And we love those stories. We admire those stories, don't we? The wise people in our world. But I don't know how many of us would probably choose that story for ourselves. We love the effect. We love the admiration, right? But we don't always love the cost of those journeys. And we'll talk about this in in the next few weeks. The, The role of suffering as a part of wisdom. Inextricably that that is a part of the journey. Navigating through the complexities is how we become, part of how we become wise. But it begins in this place of open-handedness and humility, recognizing that ultimately in the end that we are powerless and need more. But that we're drawing in our prayers on the hearts of the one who has designed all of this. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 8. And I feel like that psalm gives us this wonderful sort of orientation to wisdom. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? There's humility, right? When you look out at the stars, all these images that are coming back from this new telescope that we have, um, just beautiful pictures of the heavens. But you cannot help but feel small in, in many ways insignificant. But the psalmist goes on and says, Yet you have made him a man little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. And see, when we start with fear of the Lord, what we see is a God who reveals to us how small we are in our humility and how large we are in our destiny. It's humbling and it's glorious at the same time. And this is what you're going to find in wisdom is that it's always kind of in this tension. Who are we to be? Are we to be as wise as serpents or harmless as doves? Well, both that this humility and this glory form this beautiful sort of tension in us that's doing a deep work. And as we learn to hold that tension, what we find is that we grow in a wisdom that, that James is going to refer to as wisdom from above. Right? That, that by fearing the Lord, what we gain is access to this wisdom from above. And I've read this passage plenty of times, but I'll read it again from James 3. He says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is who we want to be. And I would love to to say that if you just become a Christian, then this is just sort of the natural course, right? That you just start bearing this kind of gentle fruit. But the truth is, I think when we look around and we see the presence of the church in our world, it often doesn't taste this way. And I don't mean that to be pointing at them. I mean that to be pointing at us. That I think that we, as followers of Jesus, need to realize that that we too have to continually yield to this work. Let God get down into the foundation and find the cracks in ourselves. See where we're gripping too tightly to things or becoming so dogmatic that we lose that teachability, letting God come in and show us more. Which is why I keep saying that, that we want to embrace the questions. And I think too often we, we see questions as maybe a lack of faith or a, a sense of inappropriate doubt when in fact that's in the classroom how we learn that when we talk about this being a brave space to grow, it's being willing to ask those questions of ourselves. As David would pray, see if there be any hurtful way in me. That's part of humility as well. That's part of becoming wise, is letting God come in and heal those parts of our hearts that have grown hard. And having the courage to be in there and let God show us that. And so this way of wisdom is difficult for that reason. I think Jesus refers to this path of wisdom as the narrow way. I think that's what he's getting at there. And he's saying it's kind of an an untraveled path for most because it's hard. And as we step into this journey, part of it is having the humility to open ourselves up. Part of it's having the courage to walk in that space, to see the things in us that need to soften. But the truth is, as we do, life gets richer. And there's such a beautiful invitation to walk in this path. And I've said this before, but the truth is without this sort of humility and openness, we lose the awe and wonder that those things harden as well. As we refuse to walk the harder paths, we lose hope. Do you know that? That's even statistically true. When we live this life of avoidance of hardship, what tends to diminish in us is hope. But when we walk those paths and we see God's faithfulness on that journey, it spurs us on. We keep realizing there's more and more and more, and then that's a good thing. 
And for us to do this together, I think it becomes one of the greatest sources of joy that we encourage each other on that path. When we stumble, we lift each other up. And so when we live in this world where churches are splitting and factioning and we practice living in a place of harmony together, even in a place of disagreements, even when our votes go different ways, even when we see things, and sometimes in cases oppositely, we learn to listen to each other and practice here. Told you this. I, I love this perspective. This guy that I was reading says, Realize everybody is at least 10% right. <laughs> and I thought, what a, what a great point, right? Like going, oh, I totally disagree. And you're like, Well, it's probably 10% of that I could hear, right? <laughs> Just that little sort of shift in how we think about it. That little bit softens us. It helps us see the humanity and the dignity of the one we're talking to. And as we do, we grow. This idea of our church being a body inherently, implicitly requires that it be diverse. Right? Paul's going to say, a church of all eyes or a church of all feet or a church of all hands, right? It's not a body. It's the diversity that protects it, equips it, allows it to fulfill its calling. But we have to learn to be in a place like that and practice unity in the midst of the diversity. The other is just homogeneity. We're like, oh, we all get along. And you're like, well, you all agree. And, and the, the second you disagree, splits. But to practice this sort of humility together requires that we're slow to speak and quick to listen. But the truth is, this is where you experience the deep fruit, the goodness. This is the invitation of this. And I think it's an invitation to us as a church. We get to experience that intimacy and beauty together, but that we get to be that for the world. This from Krista Tippett. She says, humility is a companion to curiosity and delight. Like humor, it softens us for hospitality and beauty and questioning and all the other virtues. Spiritual humility is not about getting small, not about debasing oneself, but about approaching everything and everyone else with readiness to seek goodness and to be surprised. This is the humility of a child which Jesus lauded. It is the humility of the scientist and the mystic. It has a lightness of step, not a heaviness of heart. Is that good? Wisdom has a lightness of step. And as we lean into this and as we weigh this matter, it's my heart that we would become softer, that we would grow, that we'd learn to see the, the dignity in each one. But that God would open us up to more, greater vision, greater purpose, greater beauty. One of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians is from Paul who says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And the fear of the Lord, right, is an invitation into that story, the bigger story, the one that God has prepared for us. 
So a couple quick little questions here as we draw our service to a close. Um, this first one is a practical one. How careful are you with your media consumption? <laughs> you know, I'm going to keep asking you this one. But, uh, but it does matter. Somebody was telling me recently that, um, oh, no, no, I heard this in a talk where they were saying the little icon on the news screen, they, now they move it around to the screen because they always had it in one place on the screen and it burned into people's TV sets, that image. <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, what a perfect analogy. But, but how careful are you with your media consumption? Are you careful to balance what you hear with other viewpoints? And, and just, you know, not saying that it's your responsibility to, to read every single thing out there, but I think it's a being careful, right, with what you're consuming, listening to more. Are you open to considering other people's perspectives or positions? What is your criteria for trust? Are you able to still love those you strongly disagree with? And I say that, this discernment, this listening, again, it's not saying, hey, everybody out there is right. It's, it's practicing discernment, but, but understanding who to trust. And really what I want to say in all of that is we want to follow wisdom. We want to be able to see it and notice it when it's out there. That the wise are the ones that we want to be listening to. And last, how are the circumstances of your life teaching you to become wise? Where do you find yourself resisting those lessons? What would it look like to more fully lean in? And that's always going to be the challenge for us. And none of us are going to do this perfectly. But to see our lives through that window that this is God's school that our lives are opportunities and the inconveniences and the struggles and the suffering and the interruptions of life all become opportunities to practice wisdom. But as we do, we grow. And as we grow, we become more and more like Christ. Would you stand with me? And if you'd like prayer this morning, we will have people down front to pray wherever you find yourself in all this. If, like Paul was saying before, if you come in and you're just in a place of joy, wonderful. If you're heavy-hearted, we would love to pray and hold those burdens with you. Um, thank you for being here. We'll have food out. Stick around for fellowship and enjoy. Get to know somebody new. But as you go, let me just pray that God would bless you and keep you that he would make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. That he would lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here.